0: Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, I'm Director of MTF Labs and this is the MTF Podcast. So I want to just get straight down to business. And since we're interested in bringing together the brightest minds in any field, if it's business we want to get down to, who better than a Harvard Business School professor to guide us. Gary Pisano is, among other things, a researcher, author and educator. He's a consultant to a whole lot of the world's largest corporations, and he's an expert in industry innovation, strategy, enterprise growth, and international competitiveness. He's got a particular interest in the biotech industry, but his work spans across fields as diverse as aerospace, automotive, fashion, electronics, entertainment, finance, healthcare, manufacturing, restaurants, semiconductors, software, the chemical industry, and web platforms. His most recent book is called Creative Construction, the DNA of Sustained Innovation, and it shows how large organizations can develop the kinds of strategies, systems, and cultures of innovation needed to allow for the sort of innovation that we need in order to solve grand challenges, deal with a changing world, and grow. Professor Gary Pisano, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing terrific, Andrew. Thanks for having me here.
0: Fantastic. You're the Harry E. Figgy Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. The first question: Who is Harry E. Figgy?
1: Uh, he was an industrialist. Started a fairly large company. Uh, I don't, don't know exactly when. It's probably the 50s or so, or 40s. Uh, rose to quite quite a bit of prominence, and then endowed a chair at Harvard University. I think because it was interested in manufacturing and the department i'm in is actually technology and operations management where we spend a chunk of our time doing manufacturing and that's also been a chunk of my research as well true operations management being operations management being a very broad area of inquiry everything from supply chains to manufacturing there's technical aspects of scheduling i'm trained as an economist my work has always spanned two areas uh, the manufacturing and innovation in fact, actually, my training is really more in trained as an economist in kind of economics of R&D, economics of innovation. But uh, when I joined Harvard back in 1988, it was actually the then called production and operations management unit, which actually had some people doing innovation. So I joined that unit, but I had to teach about production. So I learned a lot about manufacturing real fast.
0: And this is not specific to any one particular industry. It's a broad church.
1: Broad, Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah, we've got folks working on everything.
0: Yeah, for sure. I used to have two books on the shelf in my office when I was a professor. One was called Everything They Teach You at Harvard Business School, and the other one was called What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School. And my joke was, that's the sum total of human knowledge right there. What do they teach
1: you at Harvard Business School? Oh, wow. Well, it's about it's, it's how you think about it. Let me tell you how I think about it. Well, we teach at Harvard Business School, yes, you do learn some stuff about business, some tools and tech, you know, you learn about capital asset pricing models and and you'll learn about some things on technical things, on supply chains or marketing and branding. You'll learn some substantive things, of course. But if you think about it, you could read all those things in a book. You can get all that. So what I think the way we've always thought about it at Harvard Business School, certainly I think about it, is we teach you a way to think about problems. So it's a problem-solving mentality and a problem-solving approach. I think that's what we do very well. And then I think what we do at our best is we teach people how to learn from their experience so if you think about case-based methodology you're confronted with a case and it's what you're really learning is how to approach a problem but also how to understand what you don't understand and each time you do a case it's like an experience and then you build upon that now like i I say that to our students that in the first week of their jobs after harvard business school they're going to have a hundred real life cases And what's going to determine how well they do in their career is not how well they, partly how well they solve those cases, those real life cases in their real life jobs, but how well they learn from those. You know, where are you on case number 100 after the first week? And I think we teach, it's really an approach to learning, uh, an approach to reasoning. I
0: guess how well they do is also affected by the fact that they're building an incredibly powerful network by being at Harvard Business School.
1: I think so. People say that, you know, nobody's ever researched that and it's, you do have a network, but Folks don't do folks' favors who aren't good. (laughs) So this idea that it's all the network, if you're not very good, I don't think the other people are going to do you many favors. And certainly, I mean, it would be an interesting question for somebody to do research on, right? To actually look at, and have to think about how you do it, but to look at the networks. I mean, I do think people get to know each other. So they obviously, and they reach out to classmates. And so that helps, right? So you're in the radar screen of people. So if you are good, there's other people who know you're good. But I think what ends up happening is these networks grow very big over time through your work, and then you're exposed to lots of other people. So maybe the power of the network that matters is not the one you got from Harvard Business School or from your university, but through the other things you're involved with, the companies you're involved with, the industries you're involved in, et cetera. It'd be interesting to, to study that question in more detail. Certainly, it probably can't hurt. But if it was just the network, then it'd be kind of disappointing because then you could just have people come to Harvard Business School for two years and party for two years and then they know each other and they'd move on. That would be a very hard experiment to run and probably unethical as well. But
0: (laughs) I think it's pretty much how British politics works, but uh, I'm interested how somebody ends up being a Harvard Business School professor. Were you a lemonade stand kid? Were you this entrepreneurial
1: type no, it's a great question. I mean, when i interested in business, you know, my father was a salesperson. He was a salesman. He worked for a company called Black & Decker Machine Tools. And, and I used to, as a kid, go around with him. Sometimes he would take me with him on sales calls. But did I aspire to be a business school professor going to go into business? No, I actually aspired... When I was in high school, I wanted to be a lawyer. In fact, I wanted to be a criminal lawyer. Funny enough, I, I used to love reading books by criminal lawyers. I don't know why, because now it just seems so alien. And so when I, as an undergrad, when I went to Yale, I thought I'd want to be a lawyer. And then I realized everybody else wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> and I thought, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Everybody, like there was this part of my brain that says, if everybody wants to do something, that's, that's too competitive, maybe. So then I kind of fished around for what else I wanted to do. And then what I really loved was architecture. So I thought, I want to be an architect. I took some great courses in art and architecture, and but I'm not very good at drawing. So I got worried about doing that. And then I wasn't particularly interested in economics, funny enough, but I stumbled into a professor who was studying the economics of innovation as my undergraduate advisor. That was purely by accident, and I got certainly got very interested in intellectually in technology and how it evolves, and the impact of economics on trade and economic performance. It was this was in the seventies when the U.S. was struggling. There was a lot going on with Japanese competition. I actually spent almost a year in Britain studying this at the University of Sussex, down at a place called the Science Policy Research Unit, which. I think at one time was probably the best place in the world for this type of research. I was just very lucky that I became a research assistant there. And then I was really excited about this. So I went to graduate school to study this, but I still didn't think I'd be a professor. I thought I'd study it and then go do something else. But then my thesis work was Turned out to be pretty good, so I got a few good job offers, including one at Harvard. So I said, "Well, let me go to Harvard," and I figure after a few years they'll, you know, they'll kick me out oh, because of the tenure system. I'll find something else to do. I'll, I'll get involved with a company or, or whatever. But then I, you know, so it's I kept working, and then I got tenure in 1997. And, and the longer I was in, the more I've enjoyed it. I mean, when I first went there, I, I wasn't quite sure I, I really liked this, but I actually loved the place and I love the work I do. It doesn't mean I don't still think about other things, but I think what I'm fortunate about at this stage of my career, and particularly at an institution like the Harvard Business School. So some academic institutions really discourage you from getting too involved with practice. They don't want you to consult, they don't want you to do. They consider it kind of almost being dirty. <laughs> but Harvard Business School has always taken the opposite attitude. I mean, actually, if you think about it, the venture capital industry, was started by General Doria. He was a Harvard Business School professor, but he also started a venture capital firm. So we've always had this view of you can be an academic, you can be a scholar, but you can also have your foot one foot in the world of practice. And so I have one foot in the world of practice through my consulting. Through I'm on boards of directors. And I find that stuff really nourishing and exciting and interesting. And so I, for me, it's a perfect balance in the world. I love doing, I still love doing my academic research. I still try to publish in, in scholarly journals and still do. Just had a paper accepted yesterday, so I was excited about that. But I also try to do work that's more practitioner-oriented. And I consult and I, I get involved with companies. So for me, it's it's a really happy balance. But I can't say it was part of the grand plan. I can't say that I stared out on the horizon at the age of 16 or 17 and said that's the path i'm going to take it was for much more evolutionary
0: sure i'm interested has the art and architecture helped
1: you know maybe i so i'm a big fan of cross-fertilization of ideas and I'm unfortunately my, my wife is an artist she's trained as an art conservator and and she does art of different types and she's studying botanical art now and i see there are connections between things and i think like uh, you know studying innovation It's a lot of design. Well, architecture is about design, and how do architects work, and what do they do? And and I still have those up on that shelf back there. Some of my favorite, you know, architecture books. I'll kind of go back and look at those, and and finding cross pollinization of the idea. So maybe it's helped a little bit with my creativity. I'm not sure, but I probably can't put my finger on it. But I've always been a big believer. I'm reading books now on, you know, art and nature, and how patterns replicate, and and that's my wife does botanical art, so she's always looking at these patterns, and I start reading about the mathematics of that. So it's off in a direction. Now, can I say that's ever gonna show up in my research? I, I don't know, but I, hopefully it's making me a little bit more a broad thinker about some things. I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer in broad thinking. And When you think about some people who are really great in things, they've crossed over. They were not trained in the original thing. You find some of the greatest, one of the best chefs of the world was trained as a lawyer. So Massimo Batura was trained as a lawyer and he became a great chef. I am one of the greatest photographers of all time. I'm a big fan of photography uh, and I do a lot of it. You know, Ansel Adam de was trained in classical music. I mean, so you get people who, I think there is a lot to cross-pollinization of fields.
0: Is there something inherently, I guess, creative or innovative about certain people or can innovation be a practice that is instilled within an organization?
1: I think it can be instilled. I mean, it's just you know this example is, is like, you know, people say no, this is born. Creativity is born, and and you know, think about applying that to some other, any other field. So think about med- say somebody's like a gifted brain surgeon. Well, they're gifted brain surgeons. Of course, some brain surgeons are gifted, more gifted than others, but that doesn't mean we don't train the other brain surgeons, right? We train them. <laughs> we train everybody. You know, some lawyers are more gifted than others, but they all get training. And thank God they do. And so. I certainly believe that training matters. It, it just, it helps you. And I'm not a big fan of the whole mystery of innovation and creativity. I think it's been made that way. And sometimes self-servingly that it's the creative visionary and oh these magical powers and I have them and you don't or, you know, and you get these people who write books about that and others who play it up and you have, I hate to say, you know, other academics who studied some of the, the Steve Jobs of the world and they're it's all about the mystique of them and the mystery I don't think it works that way. I actually think it's like, look, there are processes here which go on. And there are people who are great at orchestrating those and seeing the opportunities, but they can be trained and they can be instilled in organizations. And we certainly see that. So uh, no, I think this stuff can be trained and should be trained. Is there a leadership dimension to that? Well, huge. Yeah. I mean, so actually, what does the leader do? The leader creates the organizational context in which that can occur. So if you think about real creativity, it involves people playing with ideas that are outside some zone of comfort, you know, taking a leap and getting into. It. So if you think about the first step in a lot of this, you know, the first question we often ask when somebody presents us with a very new idea, new hypothesis is, well, how do you know that's right? And that's actually the worst question you can ask because then you just shut down the discussion because if it's a new enough idea, you have no idea whether it's right. So you we do that in academia all the time, by the way. Somebody says, I'm thinking of this idea. I've got a hypothesis about you know, some phenomenon. And they're very excited about it. And then our natural tendency is to start to ask those hard questions, which eventually they're going to have to answer, but not now. And you, But I, I'm certainly guilty of this, too. I, I'm sure I've asked somebody, say, so, well, tell me why you think that would be true. And if it's early enough, the answer is I, I have no idea whether it's true, but that's why I want to go explore it. And so we, a leader creates an environment where it's okay for people to say, Here's an idea. It's it's probably half baked. Fine, go explore it. Go experiment with it. Let's find out what part of it is, which half of it is baked, and which half of it is unbaked. And then we'll think, iterate from there. Now, eventually, you know, you have to make sure things are done right, and there has to be rigor. But that's like a leader creates an environment where people. Can be free to do that, but also hold people accountable then for just not, you know, willy nilly making stuff up, but then being disciplined in how they approach these things. So I think leadership is is a huge component to this. Huge. The kind of
0: the standard received wisdom, I guess, is that startups are small and innovative, but perhaps lack some of the resources needed to execute. Whereas these large companies have all these resources to execute with, but they're resistant to risk because the stakes are so high. Is there a happy medium? Is there a way that they can learn from each other? How can that be sort of you know leveled out?
1: Yeah, it's great. And again, it's the generalities. I mean, are all startups innovative? No. In fact, most startups die. So it's not. As... And a lot of startups are are full of all sorts of pathologies in terms of the leadership. And you have a founder who starts a company who has a very definite idea of how things are going to be, and they're intolerant to anything else. And they're they're worse than a big company in some way because they don't have the resources and they don't have the they don't have the agility. But I do think it's a startup attracts people by definition who are willing to take risks. So as I point out, I point this out in, in my book, Creative Construction, that the difference between an innovative environment and an entrepreneurial one. In entrepreneurial environment, true entrepreneurship, in true startups, I mean, everybody's risk-taking because they know the data. They know, I mean, they shouldn't be naive. Most startups fail. I don't know the exact number is, people have this number thrown around, but we know a vast number of them fail. So when the, your startup company fails you've lost you lose your job <laughs> so, <laughs> and sometimes all the money you put and definitely all the money you put in that's where, so you get a self selected group of people who are sort of willing to tolerate that that's not the case in a larger enterprise where people are paid salaries and you know there's no way microsoft is going bankrupt next year okay not they've put $25 billion dollars on their balance sheet or whatever it is so you do get differences in the environment And I think it's a difference in comfort. I think what ends up happening in a startup is there is that true fear of failure. It's true of fear of failure in a good way that, look, we have to move. We have to, you know, we have to survive. We have to push forward. That's a little different. A larger company can be focused very much on, it will focus on the risk because it's got more to lose, right? And I was teaching a case study not long ago in my class. I won't mention the company because I'm not sure you want me to say it, but it was very interesting. We had a case protagonist there who started up a venture inside a large company and it's it grown to be quite successful. But he listened to the students talk about it and he said very just he said to them, You you spent a lot of your time talking about the risk. But I was struck by the fact you didn't talk much about the opportunity at And it was like the students were like, you're right. And that's kind of like wow, like we did that. And that was our natural tendency to think about all the reasons the company shouldn't do this project, but we didn't think about all the reasons they should do the project. And it was kind of an eye opener. And so I think that mentality though gets created in can get created in larger companies where, you know, every time somebody proposes something, there's 10 people who will tell you not either tell you it's wrong, but tell you all the things that could go wrong. And there are 10 things. I'm sure there's more than 10 things that can go wrong. But if you focus just on those, you're you're never then gonna see what's the potential upside. I was struck
0: by the title of something that you wrote uh, with uh, Willie Shee: the Restoring American Competitiveness. This is sort of like the seminal article that always pops up whenever your name goes into a search engine. And I'm, I'm curious about that title, because Restoring American Competitiveness can be interpreted along the lines of, let's say, Build Back Better, or along the lines of Make America Great Again, which does it have more in common with?
1: <laughs> not, definitely not the latter title by by the politics of it. But why did we choose that title? At the time we wrote that article, it was 2008. We felt that American competitiveness with respect to manufacturing in particular, and as it was affecting what was going on in the technology space, was, was declining. And that we had to figure out ways. And that book is focused very much, that article, and the book is called Producing Prosperity, which is about the role that manufacturing plays in supporting an innovation-based economy. And so the idea was to restore, produce prosperity, or to restore competitiveness, there's some types of manufacturing are really required. They are part of the innovation ecosystem. And the thinking there was that we were losing sight of that. The manufacturing debate, we still see evidence of this even today. Manufacturing today is not about producing a lot of jobs. There's about 9% of jobs in America are manufacturing jobs. And given productivity improvements, it's hard to imagine a scenario where you produce lots and lots and lots of jobs through manufacturing. It, that's not the role of manufacturing. Now, I understand why politicians focus on that, because they have to talk about jobs. But that's not the kind of direct manufacturing jobs are going to be produced out through expanding our manufacturing sector. But it's related to lots of other things. There's skill sets and knowledge and capability that you require for innovation that manufacturing, if you have it close by, can really be helpful. But I think we're learning a little bit about the power of manufacturing. And look, in the last year with COVID, suddenly it was like, "You like, well, we can't produce any masks. We can't produce ventilators. We don't. We can't produce these things, or we can't produce vaccines, or whatever it is." We've learned about the power of it for those kind of issues. But it's also important in terms of innovation. A lot of innovative products require innovative processes, and if you don't have the capability to make those, then the innovation eventually gravitates to those places. And and that was the point Willie and I were making, is our concern that as manufacturing gravitated outside the U.S., it wasn't that everyone else was going to do the grunge work of manufacturing and America was going to do all the fancy stuff of R&D. It was that the R&D eventually was going to follow. It. First comes the production engineering, then comes the other design, then comes the testing, but eventually the other stuff goes with it because there can be situations where there's many situations where the co-location matters
0: right something i'm really interested in the sort of the i guess the the discourse of all this for me is that you use the words prosperity and competitiveness almost like they're synonyms because uh, to me what you've just described is restoring american prosperity but what you called it was american competitiveness why is it important for a country to be competitive
1: yeah so that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that because it, one, he it turns off and gets thrown around, but we were pretty clear about it. So we think about every individual in the economy. In fact, when I start talks on this topic, I always ask people, who are you competing with and how we think about that question? And if you ask that question in 1900, people would say, oh, I'm competing with the folks in my town, you know, the, the blacksmith down the town or the carpenter down the town or the poor down the town. And if you ask that question, you know, years later in the 50s, it was like my region or maybe my country, and then with trading blocks, you know, you think, well, within Europe, think about people start to realize, well, wow, I compete with European other countries in Europe. If I'm in Italy, I'm competing with, now I'm competing with the French, where they're used to have more boundaries. And so then we, or the US, we think about the North American free trade area and, and okay, so there's more competition But the global economy means you're competing with everybody. So now you say countries compete. Well, countries don't actually compete. The people in those countries compete. So it's American competitiveness has no meaning for me if I'm out of a job, right? If somebody in some other part of the world took my job, that has a head and say we're a competitive economy. It's like it's not for me. So it's it's how do you, so I actually think about the competitiveness and prosperity together of individuals. How do you make people more competitive in their ability to, to gain access to these jobs? how do you rate skill levels, all of those. And that's what competitiveness is. It's, it's the resources of your country becoming, and particularly the human resources of your country becoming really competitive in attracting the work they need. And so I, I actually think they're, they, when we define competitiveness properly, it is about the prosperity of the people in them.
0: When you talk about that kind of upskilling, are we talking about training or are we talking about education? Is the important part of that?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, I think it's sort of both. I mean, I think a lot of it is education, but a lot of it is just getting the right skill set. So right now, one of the biggest challenges in manufacturing in the U.S. and we Willie and I were hearing it as far back as two. Well, we wrote the article in two thousand eight. We wrote it during the first what was then called the Great Recession, and then we wrote the book Producing Prosperity in two thousand twelve. But actually, even just I was reading very recently that one of the biggest challenges now is we're coming out of the kind of COVID induced recession, as manufacturing scaling back up is shortage of skilled workers. A lot of manufacturing, if you think about the kind of manufacturing that that the US and other advanced industrialized countries in Europe or, or Japan, the kind of manufacturing that is going to be in those countries where they're going to be competitive is in very sophisticated stuff. And sophisticated stuff takes sophisticated workers. There's sophisticated machinery involved, and it takes sophisticated workers. And some of that is education, and some of it's gonna ha- is also training and training workers on that. So I think it's a combination of it that getting people really well trained. Manufacturing isn't what it was, you know, sixty, seventy years ago. Where it was more manual, it I'd like to say it's it doesn't require a strong back now. It requires a strong brain. And you go into these factories now; they're quite technical. There's folks in white coats, and people are operating machines. The machines are working on the product, but the people are working on the machine. So it's that's what's going on there. And there's programming, and there's geometry, and and I hear this is again. Willie and I were hearing this a long time ago about people complaining. I just can't find the skill sets I need, and in some areas like skilled machinists, people that operate CNC tools, and they are very, 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 very hard to find.
0: And presumably with the sort of the onset of AI and robotics and those kind of environments, I guess the concern would be you need to stay ahead of the robots in order to be able to do that. How do you do that? I mean, is AI coming from management positions?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's it, a great question, right? It's coming It's in lots of areas of kind of, you know, what does AI do best right now? It, it can recognize patterns. So I think any job where you know, any job where it's all about just purely pattern recognition is likely in some trouble. But there's a complementarity that I think needs to be appreciated. And I use the analogy of autopilot in airplanes. So there's a lot of autopilot in airplanes, but it doesn't mean you don't want really skilled pilots, right? And in fact, you need particularly skilled pilots when the autopilot can't function right, which actually it doesn't function right under the extreme circumstances. So under many circumstances, autopilot is just fine. You know, you get these debate, you get this discussion with autonomous vehicles. In fact, right? right, this example is given you one of the an expert on on AI at Harvard telling me, like, you know, people say, say to me, like, well, autonomous vehicles means my 85 year old grandmother can be can drive, you know, she can be taken around now. You don't have to worry about it. But he said, if you think about the conditions where an autonomous vehicle won't work, it's a a bad story. The sensors are clogged because there's hail or whatever, there's ice. And he goes, now that's a driving condition where you definitely don't want your 85-year-old grandmother with limited vision in the car. You need somebody who's really skilled. And I think the same thing is true, say, pilot, right? You need now, when a plane gets in trouble, you know, like the guy who landed the plane in the river, you need now superstars. I think the same thing applies in all these other Professions where it's AI may handle many routine things and will make some things routine that weren't before, but it doesn't mean it can handle all the contingencies. And that actually kind of raises the bar on what the humans have to do. The humans have to handle the really complex stuff the the exception, the bad condition, the crisis, the thing where the the algorithm breaks down. And they have to be able to recognize that. This gets challenging. Like you have to recognize when the algorithm is breaking down and it's time to quote unquote, go off autopilot, right? That's what a good pilot does. A good pilot realizes, wait, things are not right here. The instrumentation's not right. Something's going on, I'm going to manual and I'm gonna fly this plane out of a problem. Again, I'm speaking, I'm not a pilot, so I'm maybe a, if you have pilot listeners, they're, they're gonna say that's not quite the right example, but, but stick with me on the broad analogy. You need to be able to get out of that. And that takes skill. That's really deep, deep skill. That's not gonna be automated for you. If you had managers who are just gonna sort of follow routines or follow, you see some of this with people like doing an analysis with an Excel spreadsheet. It's not AI, but they get an answer. So this project has got a higher rate of return than that project. Let's do that without thinking about that. You don't need that kind of manager. To know which number is bigger on a spreadsheet, you need somebody with about a third grade education who does maybe second grade, actually maybe in kindergarten, they know which number is bigger within a range. What a sophisticated manager does is says, wait a minute, Yeah, I know this number is bigger than that number, but let's go dig deeper. Wait a minute, what did we miss here? Wait a minute, what else is going on? And they're kind of working their around and they're finding the flaw, you know, in the procedure, in the algorithm. And that's kind of what we need now of managers. And we need that for as well, workers who are now going to be engaging with these systems fairly routinely. And we're going to, we better educate people about that and train them to do that. Otherwise, we're going to have some real problems.
0: I want to talk a little bit about growth because growth is one of those things. It's, it's kind of the mantra and the underlying logic of, of what well, capitalism essentially is. Perpetual growth sustainable?
1: So that's a question I'm obsessed with. I'm glad you clearly you've probably been reading my background because you're hitting all the things I'm obsessed with. So you know, I, my course I teach at Harvard Business School is called Driving Profitable Growth. It's the area I've been doing my research on the last four or five years. So it's more growth for companies than economies. And it's certainly for companies you can ask. Can you separate those things though? Great question. You can a bit, but not completely. So you can certainly have economies where individual companies don't grow, but you've got to be able to create new companies that create the growth, right? you stack on top of it. But companies often it's the question, can companies grow perpetually? And of course, I don't know if anything is completely, is ever fully perpetual, but we don't understand a lot about, I mean, I think what starts to happen in organizations is that, so the data shows most companies don't grow, actually grow very quickly. So it is the obsession of every company, but it turns out to be sustained long-term growth is really rare. Not the uh, not the rule.
0: Do you mean they expand and contract or do you mean that they plateau and then they grow a Once bit more? Once they
1: plateau, they tend not to grow after that. It's quite interesting. Companies do most of their growing. And companies are a lot like people. They do most of their growing in short time spans. Like we probably do most of our growing somewhere around the age of, I don't know, between age. Like we have growth spurts somewhere around adolescence or so or age 9 to 14, whatever it is it turns out companies do a chunk of their growing. They have periods of time where they grow a lot. And then after that, they just sort of plateau. And then they they sometimes get smaller by selling stuff off, but they almost never return to their glory days of rapid growth. Is that the same as reaching
0: maturity or is that atrophying?
1: It's a little bit of atrophy. So I've been really grappling with this. And actually the subject of my next book will be about company growth, but I I think it's a, a complexity. What happens is it's like product technology, if you think about what happens to the technologies over time, they become more complex because we add more functionality to them. and That's almost true of every technology, because you can measure it by parts, you think about any product, you chart it on it, like what was the first generation, the second generation, do it by cars, airplanes, airplane engines, computers, computers, whatever it is, the number goes up. And partly it's because we ask these things to do more and more, but we begin to plateau, we get diminishing returns in terms of the functionality. I think we can think about organizations a lot like technology. In fact, an organization is a technology. We don't normally think of it this way, but that's what an organization is. It's a technology for carrying out transactions and creating economic value. That, that's in some sense what it does. As a, an organization, as a technology matures, it begins, and I, they just get more and more complex. They start adding stuff on to what they do which makes it more and more difficult for them ultimately to change direction. And I think that's becomes the key issue is the markets they're in are maturing, there's less growth there, they, they can't pivot to others. That's certainly one hypothesis I have now. Because what I do find, it's just, I'm always struck by the massive amount of complexity in, organization, in large organizations. And I often ask senior leaders, like how do you get things done? Like how do you actually do anything here? And they sort of laugh. Like, oh yeah, you don't know, no. I said, no, I'm serious. Like, literally, quite literally. How do you do things? Because I don't understand. And I sometimes I'll consult these companies and I'll follow a decision, and it's like you get dizzy. I mean, I literally say, let me staple myself to a, I don't know, these days it's all digital, but the old days you think about a folder being passed around, right? A a vanilla folder. If I could staple myself to it and say, what happens to me? I'm a decision, where do I go? It's like a ping pong. You're just ping ponged around in all these different groups. And it baffles me. It's actually quite remarkable things get done in, in some organizations. So I think that's part of it. They begin to, now, does that Analogy, does that apply at an economy level? I don't think so, because at economy level, you can get births and deaths of these entities. So if these entities become too, you know, they themselves atrophy in a good economy. And I think this is the, the best of kind of sort of a capital economies. Those companies atrophy, they die, they go away, and new companies rise up. It's a kind of Schumpeterian process and, and you get dynamism and, and resources get reallocated. So economies can continue to grow. They tend to grow. You know, when they're young and they they're having an explosive growth phase, but I think economies can continue to grow. And I think we define growth differently than just sheer output, but it could be quality of life and other other metrics. But so i so I do think growth for the economy level is can be perpetual. and, and desirable. I think it can be for companies as well, but I think there's lots of forces that act against it. I don't know. I'll figure it out. I have to figure it out before I write the next book. And then you can have me on your next, po- you can have me on a podcast of the future and ask you. so what did you figure out? Cause I'm still grappling with it.
0: <laughs> I will take you up on that for sure. Is at the national level, is GDP still a good measure of that?
1: Yeah, not really. I mean, no. <laughs> so there's lots of people smarter than I have written a lot about the limits of GDP. It's a crude measure. But it doesn't pick up some of the things. There's lots of things it doesn't pick up. I wouldn't say get rid of GDP or anything like that. It's but there's lots of things we don't pick up in these statistics. And as long as we can figure out how to adjust for them in making policies, we're probably okay to stick with those statistics. But just you know, GDP is just surely the output. But how do you think about, you know, if you're thinking about quality of life, like GDP without pollution is different than GDP with pollution, right? If I'd rather have my GDP. With clean air versus not. I don't know how that quite gets picked up. There's lots of things that occur that don't, like the other thing I was thinking about the other day was we measure inflation, we look at purely prices, but it's very, very hard to adjust for the quality. I think there's a lot of service, what I call service inflation, which means the quality of service goes down, but the price stays the same. Now it kind of gets picked up as well, the prices didn't go up, but is service really good? And I don't know if those are fully, it's hard to adjust for those. So I do think. There's lots of unmet needs. I'm a big fan of growth, because there's tons of unmet need. There's tons of people who don't, I, I'm not one of these people at all who would say, gosh, we gotta stop growing. We have to grow. There's And people who say we don't have to grow are generally living very comfortably. They're not the people who are living uncomfortably. And then you ask them if they'd be willing to give up their comforts allow others to be comfortable they're generally less excited about that <laughs> so it's like well don't until you're willing to give up your comforts there's lots of other people who are less comfortable there's lots of people who don't have health care there's lots of people who can't afford things there's lots of dirty water in the world that needs to be cleaned up there's lots of air that needs to clean up those are all forms of growth when you correct those problems that is growth that's a good thing so growth can can and should be viewed as a good thing should we stop making quite so much stuff along the way depends. It's like the kind of thing when people have enough stuff, they say we have too much stuff. It's not for me to choose whether we should make stuff for us. There's lots of people who want stuff, and I think they should be have. They should buy it and have it. So I think stuff is good. We should we think about ways to produce stuff responsibly. Yes, we should, because the problem isn't the stuff it's the uh, side effects of the stuff the waste that gets occurred the dumping the plastic the, all the other junk, the energy that could use to make the stuff but we can we can figure out again a part of good growth is figure out how to make stuff in a way that doesn't destroy you know destroy the planet destroy create all sorts of problems so no stuff is not necessarily a bad idea if, if people people again people need stuff there's lots of people in the world who don't have adequate housing don't have adequate clothing don't have things that they need and so we should be producing stuff.
0: I like that you said that a company is essentially a technology because it's also a culture. And that's a word that you've used a lot in your writing. What do you mean when you say culture?
1: A culture is a social contract, right? It's an agreement that we have. It's generally implicit, but almost always implicit about how we're going to behave, how you're supposed to behave if you're part of this group. You want to be part of this group. This is how you behave. And somebody once put it, it's culture winds up being how you behave when no one is looking. And so I think that's what, it's incredibly important. And I'm an economist by training, and economists typically don't do anything on culture. And I've just found it to be really fascinating. And in the work I've done on innovation and the creative construction book, I have a whole third of the book is on culture. People talk about cultures of innovation. And... To me, I, you know, I'm just scratching the surface of that. And I think culture, by the way, is also part of the growth stuff, because one of the reasons companies stop growing is their cultures break. But it is it is an agreement about how you're going to behave, and it's almost never written down. So companies have these value statements and things which are written down, and uh, those almost never reflect the culture. And those are just usually cheesy statements that they paid a public relations firm to create and But then you say to people, what's really important here? And then it's actually, you go watch people, you observe. So culture are the behaviors and you can see the behaviors. Sometimes The the values are harder to see. So the behaviors are expressions of the values. So I always say, look at the behaviors. What are people doing? What are they saying? What are they not saying in meetings? What are they saying afterward? That will tell you a lot about what the culture is. So yeah, it's it's basically though a social contract that we've at least implicitly agreed to follow And there's different ways folks come to learn those. Sometimes, you know, it's just, you kind of learn by observing, you go into an organization and you, that's the first thing new people do in an organization is they look around, right? They're like, okay, what, what, how do people behave at meetings? Who challenges the boss? How do people speak here? Do they, and they start to, they, they start to emulate those.
0: It's not often a monoculture though, is it? I mean, there's often competing cultures within an organization. An example, I used to work both in radio and music industries and like, you'd always get the so-called creatives in sort of one end of the building complaining about the sort of management and sales people who would always say, well, you know, it makes no difference whether we're doing this or shoes or toothpaste or whatever. It's, it's still sales. It's still, you know, it's, it's just business. Are cultural industries special? Or are they different in some way? Or, or do those sort of uh, cultural clashes play out in all different industries?
1: Oh, they, they play out everywhere. And they're not necessarily a bad thing, by the way. So, you know, monocultures are dangerous in the sense that I use an example from nature bananas are largely a monoculture, right? Because there's largely one genetic dominant variant of bananas. And there's a banana blight around the world. So, bananas have been dying because they're very vulnerable. So, in nature, genetic monocultures are extremely vulnerable to, say, disease or attack. So an organization, which is a real, it's Touch 22, because a lot of times people work, we really need to have, we all need to be behind us, you get this monoculture, and that worked great, but then the environment changes, and then you've got like, you're like going in this direction, and you can't change, so some of that tension is good, and you see it a lot and some of it is understandable. So you see it all over. Research and development versus manufacturing. I mean, that one, I through my professional career, because I do both work on innovation in R&D and manufacturing, I've worked on both sides of that aisle. And I've just watched that play out. And that's part of that is natural because they these folks have different jobs. The manufacturing person is like, I got to make this stuff. It's got to conform to quality and I'm going to be held accountable for cost. And the R&D person is, it's got to be new and different and i'm excited and and those can clash and you have to find you do have to find compromise and so the clashes actually can be good within bounds it can get to, if it gets dysfunctional this is where leadership matters it's like we're going to have different opinions on this some of the, those differences are helpful but let's remember the problem we're trying to solve and let's not question people's motives we may have different means but as long as we have the same motives look we're, we've got the same problem to solve we're trying to in the case of the radio you point out we're trying to get listeners we're trying to make listeners really happy right because that's ultimately if our listeners aren't happy we're not going to make money if we don't make money none of us are going to have a job so let's focus on that right we're going to make the customer happy or we've got to solve this problem that's the moat. that's we should be all motivated by the same thing now we have different motives. that's fine but but at the end of the day let's not question if the other people involved don't share the mission if if people share fundamentally different missions like fundamentally then you've got a problem and that's the job of leadership to make sure we all have different jobs here we have to we have different specialties different things are going to be important and but we have the same job at some we're, we're on the same we're on the same mission yeah
0: it's interesting the the radio case study to me i mean obviously cuz i'm interested in it but to me it's really fascinating because In the minds of the two different sections, for the creative people, the listeners are the customers and to the advertising salespeople, listeners are the product and that's, you know, they're not the customers at all. So so the actual kind of motivation is coming from completely different directions. Does that play out anywhere else or is that just a... (laughs) Just the nature of broadcasting.
1: Well, think about healthcare. It plays out huge. I mean, think about this conversation pharmaceutical company, Who's the customer? As a, like they say with the patient, you have patients, you got physicians, and you have payers. Right? And most parts of healthcare, people who are paying for the product is different from the ones who's using it versus the decision makers. So who do we focus on? So how do you think about that? And different parts of the organization may be focused on different needs. And the reality is they're all important, right? I mean, if all three of them, I mean, if somebody won't pay for a drug, it doesn't get used. If somebody won't prescribe it, it won't get used. If patients don't want it or don't know about it, it's not going to get used. Remember, who's paying for it? So you know, the radio situation is an example of realizing that organizations fit in complex ecosystems where it's not always as simple as what we kind of maybe were taught at one point in time of simple supply and demand, right? There's one time there's demand is one product, there's multiple products that are being sold. And, you know, you're selling advertising, but you better sell listeners on it so that listeners come. And so they're both, they're both important, right? And there may be trade-offs there that have to be thought through, but thought through intelligently. And it doesn't mean everybody gets their way because that's impossible, but so some of that is goes back to not culture, but it comes back to clarity around strategy and being clear about the trade off you may need to make in some of those in some of those contexts.
0: The health company parallels really interesting, and you're actually on the board of a couple of health companies yourself. Yes, I am. Yep. That must be a growth industry, about now.
1: It is. Yeah, look, it's hard. These are biotech companies. I've, I've been involved with pharmaceuticals and biotech since the '80s, so I know that industry well, and I've worked with a lot of companies and observed on several boards on two boards now. And you know, they're very exciting. They're, there's just so much going on. I have followed the the kind of and I've been involved with the biotech, pharmaceutical, life sciences industry for four decades now. It's going on four decades, I guess, which is a frightening thing to say out loud. But and the potential to influence lives in a really positive way is pretty extraordinary. And so when we see organizations doing all sorts of new things and being getting a chance to get a front row seat on that and see how hard it is too. This is really hard stuff and some really great people dedicated. So it's, it's, it's really, it is fascinating to watch.
0: To what extent is intellectual property an important component of of these sorts of conversations around innovation within large industries?
1: I mean, I think it's important because innovation is, it is and can be expensive. And so then the question is, who's going to invest in it? It's a classic argument of who's going to invest in it if, if you can't somehow protect what you've created, if it's out there, especially in a global economy, because there's folks who could just pick stuff up and, and kind of run with it. And you start to kind of destroy the incentives. And and so, but, but IP at its best is design. I mean, if you go back to how most patent regimes were designed, it was to maximize the trade-off between, look, in exchange for disclosing, I'm protected. But through disclosing, others can build upon it. So good IP law really helps the building upon. It should focus on the building upon as opposed to, you know, sometimes you want to get rid of the exclusivity. You hear that, let's get rid of that exclusivity. Well, that's not, that's going to, you know, hear this with, with pharmaceuticals a lot, like, you know, this sector doesn't attract the kind of investment it does if everything's generic. So, don't worry about that part. Let people exclude, but then make sure there's a capacity to build upon and get better. And so, I think IP is, is quite important in fostering innovation, as long as it's not blocking. If you allowed patents to be so broad, this is okay. Imagine I could patent the car. and say okay? so nobody else could do anything in cars. That's just, or just like electric vehicle. I have the patent on electric vehicles, like some really broad patent that would be harmful to society. Then it blocks all the cascading that can occur. But if I can patent a new a particular technology within that, that is, I've worked hard at, then sure, I have the right to capture that. And I should protect that. Others can build upon other things. So I, I think it can be a really, it's well-designed. I think IP can be a really important part of an effective innovation system.
0: You, you said that we should have good IP
1: law. Do we have good IP law? So I'm not an expert on that. I've looked at it a bit in the past. I mean, IP law evolved. I mean, at least in the US, it's it's really it's it's through it's through court case, through common law, really. And so it depends how courts have been I, I mean, in general, I think they've been striking the right balance. I know there were some years ago that there were these like moves to put on, you know, business models that could be patented. I don't think that went anywhere and that's probably a good thing. You know, I, I don't think it's broken, but there's people who spend a lot more time. I, I thought a lot about how companies use their intellectual property and their strategies around intellectual property. I've spent less time thinking about the design of these regimes. Again, there are people who spend their careers and who might have very different views. When I think about countries that struggle to innovate, or I think about places where we've seen struggles to innovate, I I don't think about it as the IT stuff was what was broken, but- I think it's a great topic to be working on. I think it, I'm glad your group is working on that with the European Commission. I think it'd be helpful to think about it. And the other challenge we have in the global economy is getting harmonization across these regimes. you have really big differences that it it can really distort things in terms of where things get done and who does what well where and et cetera. but it's I mean, it's an incredibly important asset for for companies. Intellectual capital is incredibly important asset now for companies. And I certainly know the kind of companies I'm involved with where, you know, intellectual property is huge and we have to spend years working on stuff. We need some way to protect that. Uh, otherwise, we just could never attract the capital to do what we need to do. How
0: pervasive is the ethics conversation in the boardroom?
1: Well, I think they are in every, at least every company I'm involved with. We, we always make sure we're being incredibly ethical and clear about what we're doing and boundaries and things which are not tolerated. I, it, it should be ethics should be so front and center what you do that you almost don't need to talk about it, although you do have to talk about it. But it should be, I think it's an incredibly important topic. And organizations that don't have those conversations and aren't clear about their boundaries, it's worse than brownies Just how do you treat people? How do you think, I mean, ethics is a broad term, but having a real kind of ethical compass, I think, is important because it, there, there's complicated decisions that you have to make in a health organization. In every organization, you're making complicated decisions. So you better have real clarity about that and know that where your compass is pointing. Mm.
0: I guess the more specific aspect of that question is, are ethics part of the metric for how well you're doing as an organization?
1: Yes and no. I mean, certainly Wall Street, investors don't measure that, right? But I think, I mean, some say they do, but they matter because if you're not look, I think we've learned if companies are not ethical, they get clobbered. <laughs> they just they just it's a losing proposition to be unethical.
0: I'm seeing some really big counterexamples to that in the world.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, that's if you think about companies that make huge ethical violations, you know, now our, some companies don't get caught, I guess, but the number that do, it, it's. Um, yeah, I'm not talking
0: about not being evil. I'm talking about actively being good.
1: Yeah, are you actively... So this gets to a really interesting debate about what does it mean to be actively good. So I think some organizations would argue, some philosophers would argue, that, look, what does it mean to be ethical? What does it mean to be actively good? Hiring and employing lots of people and paying them well is being good, Right. In fact, there's arguments that are kind of interesting. I'm not sure where I come out on that. Say, look, the whole idea of kind of stakeholder capitalism just gives more power to CEOs, and they already have enough power. Why would so our elected officials should have more powers? There's one. There's counter argument to the whole. What's going on now with you know we need to fix capitalism. We need to make it more ethical, and we need to make companies have broader social responsibility. I've read some very interesting counter arguments that say. That's You really want CEOs to have more power? Don't they already have enough? Why don't we, the power should be at the ballot box. And some people argue, well, the ballot box is broken. That's why we have to turn it over to companies. But so you see where we are at this. So I look, so, and we have these discussions in, in my class too, around companies that grow and companies that have kind of different approaches to capitalism and ethics. And, and again, not, not ethics, not in terms of doing bad, but good. Like how some companies view what their mission is. And, you know, I don't think there's easy answers to that. I think ultimately what companies are going to get rewarded for is, look, they need to attract customers. Customers have to care about the ethics of the company. The investors have to care about it as well. And that that's what influences behavior. I certainly find, I'm always surprised the number of people I run into in who you sometimes least expect in terms of their background, you know, private equity managers and all that, who care. They think a ton about those things. Like, what's the right thing here to do for the employees? What's the fairest thing to do? Or how do we think long-term? So I think there's stereotyping that gets done that gets not always helpful in it. But there it is an interesting question. I mean, companies are being ethical when they're producing great product for customers that they didn't have before, giving access to giving people choices they didn't have before. It's, it's very popular now to beat on Amazon. Everybody loves beating on Amazon, but everybody uses Amazon, right? I could just tell, looking out my window, I could see all the Amazon boxes on all the houses and I see them around and realize, well, there's lots of people from Amazon is an absolute lifesaver. If you're working, you can't get to the store, Amazon delivers. Now, if you're a small merchant, you hate Amazon. I get it. Uh, then it's controversy. How does Amazon treat its employees? Do they treat their employees well? Amazon would argue, look, we employ, I think in, around the world, it's 600,000 people. These are complicated arguments to think through. I don't know if there's a single right answer to them. I certainly think that organizations do well when they treat people well, that is when they treat their employees well and fairly, when they treat their communities well and fairly, and they treat their customers well and fairly, and sort of do the simple, do what's right by them as opposed to do what the minimum we need to do. I think there's a good view of just doing in the end, what is right for doing what's right by people that can go a long way. And just having that as your, as your compass,
0: you get invited to consult to a lot of companies and presumably you say some of the same things to all of them. What's something common that you would Let's say you were invited into Amazon to tell them something interesting to help them. a lot. Presumably that you get invited because it's helpful to the company for you to be there. What is the helpful thing that you would be likely to say to an
1: organization? Yeah, much. and by the way, so the, we were just talking about ethics. I'm not an ethics expert. There's people who spend their careers thinking about it. So that's certainly one of the areas I don't get invited for because there's people far smarter than me on the complicated issue of of ethics. And it's an incredibly important issue. So that would be one where I wouldn't be invited. And if I were, I wouldn't speak on it because I don't think I can say anything that other, I and mean, there's some other people who are much better at it. But the kind of things I get asked to speak about are are really a few things. I mean one is innovation, that work that came out of the creative construction book. How do we maintain our innovativeness as we get bigger, as we grow? Because that's been one of the dilemmas. you you said it at the outset. as companies get larger, they kind of lose that risk take. What else do they lose, and how do they create that verb? I mean, you innovate to grow and then you grow and then you lose the capacity to innovate. It sounds really miserable. I refer to that in in the book as a catch 22. And so that's a lot of what I, I work on with organizations when I get asked to speak about. And, and to me, you can grow. You have to get, you sorry, you can innovate as you grow, but it's about clarity of the strategy. It's three things it's strategy, it's the system, and it's the culture. And those are the three jobs of leadership. So that's a big chunk. I speak a lot and work with companies a lot on just strategy alone. So I think many organizations don't have. People, strategy is an expensive word. It gets used a lot. People think it's really, you know, everybody's a strategist. And then you you ask, what is your strategy? And you get some 80-page PowerPoint presentation that's loaded with charts. It's like, look, a good strategy, stick it on one page, right? I mean, what is the fundamental purpose of this business? What are the fundamental choices about how it's creating value? And what's it about what it's not about? And it turns out strategy is a really hard thing to work at. It's a simple problem in the sense that it's not multidimensional, but it's hard it takes a lot of work to figure out and it is a creative act to figure it out to work through it and make sure you understand what this organization is going to be about or not. So I work a lot with companies on just helping them be clear about strategy because I find the practice of strategy in reality is is quite poor. So I often work a lot with companies on on strategy.
0: Do you need to be an optimist to do what you do?
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I was once asked an interview about, somebody once referred to me an in the interview, they said, I was an optimist by nature, and my wife laughed, at it. so I'm afraid if I, and she always listens to my podcast, too, so I'm going to be careful how I answer this one. I So I think I am. <laughs> She's going to be laughing right now. I know when we get to this part of the interview. I, yes, I am. I, I really am an optimist about things. I don't know if you have to be an optimist about things, but... It's like you have to feel like you can change what's happening, whether it's an organization. I think all of us who get into this this world of social science, you're trying to make things better in your own way. And For me, I try to make, I certainly believe that if you can make organizations work better, you can actually make the world a better place. They create more value. They create better jobs. They can operate better. And I believe that with the right kinds of we can make progress, just like we make progress with technology. Our televisions today are better than they were when I was a kid. Our phones are better today. Everything things are better. Technologies are better. Again, organizations are technologies. That's all an organization is. We can make those technologies better. So yes, I'm optimistic. And I think I guess if I weren't optimistic about that, then I would find something else to do with my time. I'd probably retire and just do lots of photography.
0: Brilliant. Gary Pisano, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Great. Thank you very much. That was fun, Andrew. Thanks.
0: That's Professor Gary Pisano from the Harvard Business School. And that's the MTF podcast. Gary's book is called Creative Construction, and you can pretty much find that anywhere you're likely to find business books. You can follow Gary on Twitter at MotoGP61. Not sure why, didn't ask, but we'll link to that on the podcast page. His website is gpisano.com where you can read more about his work and his many, many publications. I'm Andrew Dubber. You can find me at Dubber on Twitter, and MTF Labs is at MTF Labs, and of course, mtflabs.net. Special thanks to Gary's wife, Alice, for listening in this week. This is one way to grow the audience. Hope you enjoyed, and we're really happy to have you with us. Thanks also to the team, Sergio Castillo, Mars Starton, and Jen Kukuchka, who make the show possible with their diverse and complementary range of skills, to Anthony Vega and Airtone for the music, Run Dreamer for the MTF audio logo, and of course to the MTF community of brilliant minds from all sorts of backgrounds and specialisms of whom you are a valuable and valued member. So I'll catch you next week. Stay safe and we'll talk soon. Cheers.